Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. Physicist Dave Rogstad is not with us today. On today's podcast, do you have doubts? Ken will offer insight on dealing with doubt. And Ken, maybe something right off the bat, and I'm sure you're going to get into this, is that sometimes people have doubts, but they're afraid to tell anyone about them. Sometimes they feel like their their faith is not up to par, so to speak, if they have doubt. I think that's exactly right, Joe. Um, I often say that uh, I think doubts are part of all of our experience as Christians, but they're often unspoken because I, I think that uh, many people think, wow, that if I have doubts about the faith, then maybe I really don't have authentic faith, or I may be discouraged by it. And we're going to talk about some of those issues uh, on today's program. Wonderful. And I know you have uh, several uh, descriptions or kinds of doubts as well. So this is, and, and you're going to uh, take us through some passages of scripture. So looking forward to it. Well, very good. I, I'm going to kind of admit my hypocrisy today. In 2004, I wrote a book entitled Without a Doubt. Um, and by the way, I think that's probably been my most uh, influential book of the books I've written, and I'm very glad. But today, I'm going to admit that even though I wrote a book entitled Without a Doubt, I have experienced doubt and still experience doubt. And uh, I want uh, us to appreciate that everybody, I think, who is a Christian is going to experience doubt. And let me give you a, a little definition here. So we're talking now about doubts about the Christian faith in the context of being a Christian. You could have doubts about a lot of things, doubt uh, whether our country is going in the right direction or doubt about the stock market. Uh, but I would define doubt as, as a lack of certainty as to the truth of the Christian faith. Um, and as we've already said, uh, many people, a common experience, people struggle with uncertainties, doubts. I think you have to learn in the Christian life how to live with uncertainty uh, and with doubts. Uh, and again, I think that this is a very common experience, Joe, um, but, it, but it is often unspoken. And, um, you know, when I get together with some of my apologist friends, uh, we talk about areas of the faith and, uh, you know, we say, wow, that's kind of a challenging issue. I think it's very healthy to admit that we, we have doubts. And I, I, want to, uh, I want to give some explanation why it's not the worst thing in the world to have a doubt. So let's talk a little bit about a book I came across a number of years ago. Uh, written by the distinguished Christian apologist, uh, Gary Habermas. He wrote a book entitled Dealing with Doubt. It was published in 1990 by Moody Press. But for many years now, Joe, that book is available online. So uh, you don't have to purchase it. Just go do a search, Dealing with Doubt by Gary Habermas. It'll pop up. You could read it online or you could print it. Uh, it's a really, really fine book. And of course, Gary has been on our program a number of times. Not, not too long ago, we had him on our program. We talked about the Shroud of Turin. 
-hmm. And of course, Gary is a leading specialist uh, on the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, he has quite a pedigree, uh, extensive background, uh, talking with uh, uh, critical New Testament scholars, debating uh, skeptical scholars. So let me read a little bit about how he talks about doubt. He says, doubt manifested in many forms from the assurance of one's salvation to factual questioning is certainly one of the most frequent and painful problems which plague Christians. And I, I think that that's right. I, I think there are times where doubts can be uh, very painful, um, maybe especially when you're already going through a, maybe a difficult time of suffering. Uh, you know, the, the doubts at that time seem to really uh, hit you in a, in, a, in a negative way. Um, William Lane Craig, who is another leading specialist on the resurrection, We've had Bill on our program. He has spoken at one of our workshops here at Reasons to Believe. And I would say uh, between Gary Habermas and, and Bill Craig, you have two of the leading evangelical uh, apologists, um, both amazing individuals. I'm very encouraged to know them and, and uh, they have a good relationship with Reasons to Believe. But here's what Bill Craig says. He has a little book uh, this is maybe his most popular book that he's written, um, and I think I, I heard him say it's one of his one of his best selling books. It's called Hard Questions, Real Answers. Hard Questions, Real Answers. So if some of Craig's material seems a bit heady to you, this is his more popular treatment, and this is what he says uh, about intellectual engagement. He says, "quote Any Christian who is intellectually engaged and reflecting." about his faith will inevitably face the problem of doubt. And I think that that's a really important point to underscore. If you are a thoughtful person, if you are reflecting, if you're analyzing Christianity and evidences for or arguments against, I think inevitably you're going to have doubt. So one of the things that I want all of our listeners to come away appreciating is that doubt is normal. Uh, we, we can transfer it to other areas. We have doubts that arise whenever we think clearly and carefully and critically about something. Of course, Bill then adds this. He says, how many sermons have you ever heard on how to deal with doubt in your Christian life? I think that's also a very powerful point. Um, you know, we live at a time where Christianity is under scrutiny. It, it, it always has been, but maybe we live at a, in a special time where Christianity uh, is being questioned. I, I think of the, uh, the new atheists. I think of the web where you can go on the internet and find every reason to believe in Christianity, but you can also find every reason not to believe in Christianity. Um, I think it would be a good thing for pastors to preach sermons about the things that bother people. Other thing that Bill Craig brought up, by the way, in, in that very same book is he says, how often have you ever heard a sermon about uh, disappointment or failure? Um, I think these kinds of things are issues that pastors, teachers ought to talk about, Joe. Uh, in fact, I have long advocated that every church ought to have a class. Um, 
I would call it maybe the doubters class where somebody can come and say, hey, uh, I have questions, I have difficulties, or I've been turned off by Christians, or uh, I'm unsettled about these kinds of things. And that would be the normal content where people would uh, work through and people would get answers to them. So that's always the way I modeled my class when I've taught in the church. Um, you know, everybody was welcome to come uh, and to ask uh, some of those difficult questions. So th that's a little bit about uh, the commonness of uh, doubt, Joe. Then uh, in Habermas's book, he talks about three misperceptions. But I, I want to pause and see if you have any comments or questions at this point. Tracking with you. Go ahead, Ken. Okay. Um, Gary Habermas again talks about three misperceptions. And the first one, he says, uh, common misperception concerning doubt is that Christian doubt is uncommon. Uh, Christian doubt is uncommon. I know that uh, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, who is arguably the most influential Christian thinker of the 20th century, uh, he, he had controversial ideas, but he was not a theological liberal by any stretch of the imagination. Of course, he was uh, in the uh, Reformed camp. Uh, Bart once said that he believed all Christians struggle with doubt of some kind. So the misperception is Christian doubt is uncommon. Uh, Oz Guinness, another uh, Christian author, uh, Oz has written on Christian philosophy, apologetics, culture, worldview, uh, has some great books out there. He has uh, one book entitled In Two Minds, In Two Minds, and he says this, it is, it is not primarily a Christian problem, speaking of doubt, it is not primarily a Christian problem, but a human problem. The root of doubt is not in our faith, but in our humanness. The root of doubt is not in our faith, but in our humanness. Joe, I think that that's a very important point. Um, it's, not, it's not just that human beings are fallen, right? If we think about the Christian worldview and we kind of summarize those four successive events, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, uh, that fall has deeply influenced all of us. Um, and even those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, that fall has affected us, and we'll talk about aspects of that a little later. But I think the point here that Guinness is making is we're also finite beings. Uh, we have two challenges, the problem of our fallenness, but also the problem of our finitude, meaning that we have limitations, we have boundaries. There's a lot of things we don't know. Uh, there's a lot of experiences we've never had that kind of orient us in a particular way. So some of the problem with doubt is not necessarily connected to our fallen nature. It's connected to the limitation of our human nature. And I would even say this, Joe, I mean, one of the big issues today uh, where people object to Christianity has to do with the so-called hiddenness of God criticism. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, why, is it, why isn't God more directly observable? 
or why don't why doesn't God respond to each and every person? Um, well, uh, part of the answer to that question is that God is infinite and eternal and transcendent. Um, human beings are uh, imminent. We're limited. We have boundaries. We're finite creatures. Uh, therefore, there's going to be undoubtedly a disconnect. And then if you throw into that the fallen condition, uh, you have variables that, that relate there. And, and of course, even in scripture, there are times where uh, the Bible talks about God being hidden. But I think in that context, Joe, it has more to do with, you know, Christians knocking at the door, Lord, I have this problem or this issue. You don't seem to be hearing me. You don't seem to be responding to me. But I think if we if we take a broader perspective, one of the reasons that human beings have doubt is that we're finite creatures. There, there are things we don't know. We have limitations. And with God, uh, the biblical God, you have to get used to the idea that there's going to be a lot of mysteries about God. I think everything about God is, is a mystery. The Trinity is, the incarnation is, uh, the atonement is, his attributes. Um, you know, the, the idea here is we're, we're dealing with an infinite and eternal being. So we have to get used to the idea that there are going to be things we don't know. And uh, that's, that's an important part. So doubts are common. It's common for finite creatures to have doubt. It's maybe especially common for people who are fallen to have questions uh, about God's existence or things of that nature. So that's the first misperception that Habermas brings up. Um, it's a misperception to think that doubt is uncommon. Rather, uh, I would say it's common. Very good. Okay, number two, uh, another misperception uh, in Habermas's uh, nice little book, which again is entitled Dealing with Doubt, and you can get that uh, available on the web. Um, the second misperception, true believers never experience doubt. True believers never experience doubt. Again, I, I think that that's uh, an unbiblical idea. Uh, questioning or doubting is not unbelief, uh, though maybe chronic, unaddressed doubt may lead to unbelief, uh, but true believers do have doubts from time to time. And here I want to turn to Scripture, and I want to lay down the context here. We're talking about John the Baptist, who uh, Jesus said is a pretty important individual in uh, coming to Israel and uh, ushering in the, come of the coming of the Messiah. This is Matthew 11, 1 through 6. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Well, uh, John has been in prison. John's going through a hard time. He's facing difficulties. And uh, of course, the idea here is that in the Old Testament, there were certain uh, 
messianic scriptures that would describe the coming of the Messiah. Joe, here I'm thinking particularly of Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61, that talk about the uh, appearance of the Messiah. And of course, they're closely tied to the idea of the Messiah will uh, work miracles. Uh, he will be a great teacher. And notice what Jesus says in reply. So John's disciples come to Jesus uh, and convey uh, John's concerns, his doubts, his questions. Uh, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Well, in my new book that I have written with um, Mark Perez on uh, logic and uh, reasoning and the life of the mind and questions about uh, bias, uh, I note that Jesus here actually gives a logical argument. Uh, his, his response to John could be set forth in a logical structure. Uh, in deductive logic, we call this the modus ponens. Uh, and it's written this way, if P, then Q, P, therefore Q. So this is a hypothetical syllogism, if, then. Uh, if P, then Q, P, therefore Q. So our first premise would be, if one does the extraordinary acts of healing and teaching, then one is the Messiah. Premise two, I do the extraordinary acts of healing and teaching, therefore I am the Messiah. Uh, and I, I stress that because Jesus is extraordinary, not just in his capacity to heal people, not just in his capacity of being a great orator, but he is a he is a sage logician in, in this kind of context. So in light of John's doubts and his difficult circumstances, I mean, imagine being in prison. Um, imagine being imprisoned because you are seen as a challenge uh, to the Jewish uh, belief system. You know, that, that was difficult for John. Uh, uh, but again, uh, Jesus, Jesus still has confidence in John, for he says in Matthew 11, 11, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So for the second misperception that true believers never experienced doubt, that's false. Uh, John was a true believer. Uh, he became a martyr. Um, but he had questions. He had doubts. He wondered, okay, well, uh, what's happening here? And again, I want to underscore that when you, when life, when life hits you with problems, maybe health problems, uh, maybe financial problems, maybe psychological problems, uh, whatever it may be, sometimes that's when these doubts kind of, uh, kind of creep in. And of course, we could we could talk about Thomas. Uh, can can a, com a comment on John uh, for a moment? You know, th this is one of those instances, uh, as you just pointed out, in the scriptures where the scripture doesn't try to um, lionize what we might consider our heroes. You know, here's John the Baptist, who just earlier 
you know, uh, was there at the baptism of Jesus and said, I'm not worthy to, uh, uh, to do his, put his sandals on, however that's stated there. Uh, you know, the one that's out there proclaiming the voice and then suddenly he's in prison and then he has all these doubts. So scripture doesn't, uh, you know, paint a rosy picture uh, at times. It just gives you the, the plain truth. So I appreciate that as a believer uh, looking to the scriptures for help. Well, that's 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 right, Joe, because uh, I think one of the reasons you can come to believe that scripture scripture is true, the gospels are giving us the you know the correct message is this idea of embarrassment. Uh, you know, if, if it was invented, would you want your great prophet John to have doubts? Or um, how about Thomas? Wow, he's got doubts. Um, th then, of course, there, there are others. Uh, Peter betrays Christ three times. Mm -hmm. I think that that's, uh, that gives us a, a, a warrant for believing that th this really is, this is giving us the, 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 the direct scoop of things. And uh, you know, be be careful meeting your heroes. You'll discover very quickly they have feet of clay, right? All of us have limitations and boundaries. We're all finite creatures. Christians are also fallen. I like to say we are forgiven sinners. We still sin. We still struggle. Um, let me just touch briefly on doubting Thomas, because uh, I'll come back to him uh, a little later in our second program. Thomas, of course, is one of the 12, and after Jesus's resurrection, he's not with the disciples, and so, he, you know, he comes straight out, kind of a tough-minded statement, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand to his side, I will not believe it. You know, Joe, sometimes skeptical people think that religious people come to faith too quickly and too easily. They're not critically minded. They're not, they're not tough-minded. They're gullible. They, they accept things too easily. Of course, I would say I can identify at least three people in the New Testament when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus who are very tough-minded, but inevitably come to faith. Thomas is one of them. I mean, he, here he is, He's not even willing to accept the testimony of the other apostles. He says, look, if I need some empirical data, uh, I, I know he was crucified. I, I want to put my finger into, you know, in the nail marks. I want to put my hand into his side. Of course, what's interesting is we're told later in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Joe, every time Jesus appears to people after the resurrection, the greeting is always peace be with you. Hmm. And I love that. Uh, uh, in Greek, it is irene umin. We talk about in English to be irenic, a, a peaceful person. Uh, of course, there is only peace in light of Jesus's resurrection. I mean, how bad can things be if Jesus is risen from the dead? And again, that relates to uh, our faith in times of trouble. Um, Jesus has overcome death. Well, he says, peace be with you. 
Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. And then, of course, one of the most remarkable statements in the New Testament regarding Jesus's identity, Thomas says to him, uh, in Greek, it is hakuriasmu kaihatheosmu, we translate it, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Uh, Kurios Lord would be the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament Yahweh, but he also calls him God, New Testament Theos. Um, I, I think Thomas recognized if, if Jesus can conquer death, then he is, in fact, uh, an extension of, of Yahweh. So do, do true believers have doubts? They do. So our second misperception is true believers never have doubts. It's only the people who are uh, sketchy who uh, have doubts. No, uh, John the Baptist had doubts. Um, Thomas, the apostle, uh, Peter had doubts. Uh, other people have had doubts. Uh, imagine, imagine the crisis, Joe, of, of being a potential martyr mm -hmm. uh, and wondering, you know, uh, I, I think we see it in Paul. You know, he brings forth this idea of I've got this thorn in the in in the flesh. I don't know exactly what that was. Was it his eyesight? Was it guilt about his persecution of Christians uh, before he came to know the Lord? But you know, he has to live with those challenges in in that context. So that's the the second misperception. Um, no true. People with true faith do have doubts from time to time. So we can all breathe a little easier uh, mm -hmm. when we have doubts. Okay, number three, Joe, a third misperception, according to Habermas, is that Christian doubt is always bad. Christian doubt is always bad. And I think what we can say here is that doubts are a natural part of our thinking process. Um, you know, when you start to analyze things, when you when you analyze something logically, uh, the last part of presenting your argument is considering evidence against your argument. Uh, again, in a book that I wrote with Mark Perez, I point out that you haven't looked at all the evidence if you haven't looked at evidence against your position. And most things in life uh, that we care about that are important, there are pros and cons. Uh, there are two sides. Um, well, it's easy, uh, it's easy to recognize that anytime you analyze something, there's going to come back data that's not supportive of your hypothesis. And uh, so part of the part of the misperception is it's always bad. No, sometimes constructive doubt leads to uh, the way for faith to grow. You know, when you go through a difficult time, and you realize, wow, and you kind of look back on it, you see the, the hand of God, the providential hand of God. It's like, you know, sometimes when I face issues um, that are difficult for me, I remember talking to my wife and she says, uh, you know, Ken, the Lord has brought us this far. He's always, he's always worked in our life. He's always provided for us. Um, you know, sometimes you can't see that while you're going through it, but you look back and you think, wow, uh, the Lord has answered my prayers. Uh, my experience is consistent uh, with the things that are, that are taught uh, in Scripture. 
So sometimes, uh, sometimes the biggest growth in our faith emerges from some of the most difficult times of our of our life. Now, Joe, I want to talk a bit more here about the root cause of doubt. Um, I would say that human beings are, first of all, finite. Second, they're fallen. So the roots of our doubt lie both in our finitude and in our fallenness. We're both limited and morally flawed. So there's two elements of that. And, and think about that in the context of people who deny the existence of God or who deny the existence of Christ. Um, part of the challenge is uh, we are finite creatures. Um, another part is sometimes when God does reveal evidence to us, our natural inclination as fallen creatures is to suppress it. Of course, that underlies the, the importance of God's grace. Uh, and I want to talk a, a little bit more ab about that idea in the context of faith being a gift. Uh, but human beings are both frail in, in an intellectual way and limited in knowledge. And uh, I would say in this life, and given our finitude and given our fallenness, we'll never resolve all of the doubts that we have. So we have to get used to it. We have to accept the idea that doubt is part of any person's uh, thoughtful reflections. People shouldn't feel guilty about having doubt. But I, I really like what Bill Craig and Habermas point out. That is, they need to be addressed. Uh, if they linger, uh, there's a problem. I was listening to Mere Christianity. Um, I've got, you know, a, about an hour commute in the morning and then uh, an hour commuting back home. So I try to listen to good stuff. Sometimes I listen to music. Other times I'll listen to books on tape. I was listening to Mere Christianity. I've read it many times. Uh, Lewis, uh, Lewis makes an interesting point, Joe. He says, when people fall away from the faith, he says, it seems like it's not that somebody reasoned them out of it. He says, it seems more like they drifted away. And then maybe they went looking for counter answers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that's an interesting thing to me. Um, how do we, we have, uh, it appears we have people today who become deconverted. And, uh, you know, you could even become somewhat of a celebrity if you're kind of a Christian pastor or Christian teacher and you've deconverted, just as we kind of uh, are amazed by, um, you know, strong conversions to the faith. We have people who fall away. But I wonder, uh, in light of what Lewis said, do they fall away because somebody gives them, uh, you know, that they have reasons to believe in Christianity? Do they fall away because someone reasoned them out of it? Did they fall away because somebody had better reasons? Or did they drift away? And then maybe they began thinking there, there are reasons to disbelieve, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the gift of faith, Joe. Um, you know, there are some passages in the New Testament that talk about faith as a gift of God. Uh, let me note two of them here that are that are very powerful, actually three. 
One of them is John 6, 65, where Jesus says, he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. So faith is a gift of God. Uh, faith is something that God enables you to, to have. Of course, different theological traditions debate exactly what that means. You know, some uh, in the Reformation tradition, in the Augustinian tradition, would say that God has to do some kind of operation on you uh, to incline your will, soften your heart. Um, others would say God has to woo you. Uh, in the Wesleyan-Arminian tradition, that phraseology is sometimes used. But Jesus says here, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father enables him. Uh, another similar passage is found in Acts 13.48. It reads, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Well, that, that, I remember when the first time I read that, I thought, what does that mean? Uh, does that mean that not everybody can come to faith on their own? Does that mean that only certain people are appointed for eternal life? How do I understand that? And of course, uh, in the common uh, discussions within Protestantism, between uh, Reformed and Wesleyans, there are differences pointing out there. Nevertheless, I still think the underlying point, Joe, is that faith is a gift. Mm -hmm. However it comes, it is a gift. Uh, one more. This is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit says, Jesus, be cursed, and no one says, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So our confession of faith um, is that we are enabled by the Holy Spirit. The Father is enabling us, we're told uh, in John 6. So the idea of faith being a gift uh, is, is a very important part of it. And, and then lastly, Hebrews 12, 2, uh, the author of Hebrews, which uh, probably was not Paul, um, it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's where we can be encouraged. Uh, our faith is given to us by God, and he's going to, he's going to make sure we persevere. Uh, that's certainly an Augustinian or Reformed kind of uh, way of putting it. So faith is trust in a reasonable and a reliable source. Joe, um, what do you think of these misperceptions? You think they're helpful to kind of work past them? And yes, I I appreciate hearing what they are because I, for one, uh, probably have uh, felt all three or thought all three, but couldn't ident identify them uh, the way they've been described here by Habermas. Uh, so it's helpful. It's like okay, that puts the finger on it. Now I know that uh, I, was, I wasn't the only one. <laughs> it's a common misperception. You know, a, a point that has struck me again, and I'm going to give a quote from C.S. Lewis a little bit later, but you know how important scripture is. Uh, I take the position that all of Christendom 
Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, the churches within the Protestant Reformation. Joe, I think all of them uh, would likely accept the idea that Scripture has no peer. And all I mean by that is, um, of course, Protestants think that Scripture is the supreme authority. It's the unfallible, it's the infallible norm. There, there are other authorities, but Scripture is the final court of appeals. But I think even Orthodox and Catholics who are conservative or traditional in their theology would admit that tradition is more interpretive, less creative, if you will. Well, we're told in uh, Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing the message about Christ. Uh, reading, how important is reading scripture? How important is hearing, going to church, uh, hearing the gospel preached? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the message about Christ. Well, it was initially an oral message, mm -hmm. but it has then been inscripturated. So very, very important ideas there. Yeah, the other, the other thing I appreciate about what you talked about a little bit early on uh, was that uh, doubt is the result of our finitude and our fallenness. Uh, I think that's important to, to kind of get in my mind as well, because I would probably be inclined to attribute it to fallenness and maybe not so much the finitude part, but that's important also. We we don't see everything. We're created beings. God sees it all. Um, so these things come up, and it's it's yeah, good to know that. It's part of our part of uh, again. Os Guinness says it's it's less uh, a problem of faith. It's more a human issue. Well, let me let me mention Saint Augustine here. Uh, Augustine is well known for. Uh, his statement, faith seeking understanding, faith seeking understanding. Um, uh, Anselm picks that up uh, in the 11th century. Thomas Aquinas affirms that idea. And the idea, uh, faith seeking understanding, even though faith is a gift, we are to seek the, the foundations of our faith. Believers should use their God-given reason to explore the depths of their faith. Uh, while faith is a divine gift, reason strives to understand. Reason doesn't cause faith, but it everywhere supports faith. I think that's such a, an important point to appreciate. Augustine took the position that reason alone, apart from God's grace, apart from the work of the Spirit, uh, apart from the Father enabling you, uh, the Trinity is involved in your redemption. Arguments independent of grace are going to drop to the ground. So reason doesn't cause a person to have faith. But if one is looking for truth and digs into it, they're going to discover that their faith is well supported. And so I want to I ask our listeners to maybe ask themselves a question. When you came to faith, was it directly because of an argument? Did you come out of need? Is it a combination? Uh, you know, uh, reason isn't independent of faith, but the idea is that God's grace has to be work at work in this process. And, and thus we pray for unbelievers. We pray for people 
Lord, uh, touch their heart, open their mind, incline their will. Uh, Faith-seeking understanding. And, and I would also say this for the Christians. Uh, you know, some people in the backdrop of their theology, they don't have a, a strong place for uh, arguments and reasons and evidence. Maybe they haven't, you know, drank from the well of apologetics, if you will. For them, their Christian experience is, is just that, experience. I think Augustine tells us that don't discount reason. Uh, you know, there are foundations for, for why we believe what we believe. So again, faith is a gift, but is it solid? Is it, is it backed up? It doesn't cause a person to faith, but it supports faith. And so you can underestimate faith or you can underestimate reason. And I think faith and reason work cooperatively within historic Christianity. Faith involves knowledge. That is to have saving faith. I have to believe certain facts are true about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So faith involves knowledge, and it's compatible uh, with, with reason. So that's that Augustinian uh, Anselmian idea of uh, faith-seeking understanding. Now, let's, let's go back a little bit here to, to William Lane Craig and Gary Habermas. Uh, they talk about an area, Joe, that is very important. They talk about spiritual warfare. Uh, you know, faith involves knowledge, it's compatible with reason, but doubt involves more than the intellect alone. And um, C.S. Lewis said uh, that he thought that demons would, would applaud two positions equally about their existence, those who ignore their existence and those who become fascinated with their existence. By the way, I think that point is such an important uh, idea because I think it's hard to be balanced about the demonic. Uh, I think you gravitate either in one direction or the other. Uh, you might want to ignore it. And I think I come from a tradition that by and large ignores it. Uh, but it's also very easy to become fascinated. You know, there's a demon behind every bush to have every explanation to involve the spiritual. But I think it is important to go to scripture. Uh, the apostle Paul, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Well, uh, again, I think, uh, I think there are many Christians who um, ignore this. I think there are other Christians who are maybe, uh, you know, put too much emphasis upon it. But Peter backs up Paul here, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, the Apostle Peter says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. So we have to factor in that there is an invisible war. 
we have to factor in that there are uh, spiritual realities um, who, uh, you know, seek to tempt us in that way. How do we respond? I, I talk about three points. One, it's really important daily to confess your sins, to repent by grace of your sins, you know, keep a short account with the Lord, whatever it may be, maybe problems with your anger or your envy, your gluttony, uh, your pride, um, uh, whatever it may be, lust, confess your sins, repent by grace, recognize the authority of, of Christ. Um, fallen angels are just that. They are fallen angels. They are creatures. They were created by God. They have rebelled against the Lord, uh, but they are creatures, and Christ is Lord over them. And then uh, recognize, as Paul says, as Peter says here, you know, people are going through trials and attacks and temptations, and you have to endure uh, those types of things. So I think that these are, are, are very, very important points. And um, uh, Joe, in our next program, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the three types of doubt. But I, but I want to close this program with uh, a quotation from C.S. Lewis, if we could. Um, this is from Mere Christianity, my favorite C.S. Lewis book. Um, he says this, that is why daily praying and religious reading and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. It must be fed. Joe, I suspect that for those of us who appreciate apologetics, who are engaged in apologetics, uh, we have to realize that uh, everything can't be apologetics. There mm -hmm. has to be a time for the study of the Bible. There has to be a time for being recharged, uh, you know, for, for embracing the faith. And, uh, you know, there are good reasons to believe. Uh, and yet we also need time to, to allow our, our Christian beliefs to refresh us. So those are some good good things. Uh, maybe we could mention some sources here. Yes, uh, I have uh, talked a little bit about Gary Habermas's book, Dealing with Doubt. And again, uh, I think Gary has uh, given up the rights of that, and you can go online and and uh, find that free of free of cost. I mentioned William Lane Craig's little book, Hard Questions, Real Answers. Hard Questions, Real Answers. I would invite people to look at my book entitled Without a Doubt, again, a little, little hypocrisy, although I actually wanted to call the book Thinking and Believing, but Baker said, nah, we need a catchy title, like uh, Without a Doubt. So I, I would recommend that book. If you have questions about science, um, Hugh Ross, uh, Fuzz Rana, Jeff Swearink have written books addressing particular areas uh, and and uh, Hugh is very, it's very common for him to look at challenging issues that come in the context of science and faith. So uh, good sources out there at Reasons to Believe. Yeah, and you can come here to our website, reasons.org, and there's a, a button for 
store or shop that you can click there and then type in any title or just browse, look through the resources there and you'll find something good that will help. All right. Well, thanks for listening to the podcast and let us know your comments and questions. Reach out to Ken via Twitter. That's at RTB underscore K samples. And we'll be glad to read your comment here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.